I've got tickets to to Moulin Rouge next weekend. Oh, do right? you? Yeah, and I've been seeing a lot because I don't know if you if other people are as big a fans of JoJo as I am. Oh big yeah, JoJo fan. yeah, I saw. I've always, yeah, I saw her. Always been a big big JoJo supporter, yeah, and as someone who got completely screwed by the music industry, but um, yeah. she yeah she debuted this week on Moulin Rouge on Broadway and is getting like really good reviews. So anyway, with all of this going on, I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna give Moulin Rouge another shot. I haven't watched it since probably like it came out or like right after it came out when all my like friends in like high school were really into it. Yeah. Um, put it on. And I had forgotten this little bit of trivia that I brought up on our Across the Universe episode, but Julie Taymor was like a consultant on that, or it was like oh. credited as like something yeah. on that movie. And it is so Across the Universe. Like, <laughs> I don't know what the deal was, if she picked up stuff from him when she was working on it, or yeah. if she like, like second unit directed some of it for him, but like some of those shots are just like straight out of across the universe. It's it's kind of wild. Yeah, let me see. Um you know, I, I saw because yeah. I, I I found an interview from her where she said, um I said this on the podcast, but she said she she claims be, like she takes credit for the idea of having actors sing live in a musical because mm-hmm. Moulin Rouge was the first movie to do it, but she was the one who like told uh, uh ba- um, ba- Lerman. Yeah. Bass Lerman yeah. to to do it. And and so and then she did it again in, in Across the Universe. But um Yeah, it's wild. It's a trip. Yeah. No, <clears throat> I no, I did just see with, with JoJo that like it was um she walked out her first night I walked out to to meet the fans the first night and was like just like shocked to see how people were there to like support her at the end of it was what it was. Um yeah, I, I I've always liked her. Like I, I think she, she great who had great music, got screwed by music industry, started doing acting, but never really took off. Wasn't bad. Like mm-hmm. she she was she was good. She just didn't have any like big role, like like uh massive roles. I guess it was the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, did RV with Robin Williams. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, and then she started when when probably like when I was in college, she started dropping these like R and B mixtapes yes, online yes. for free because she wasn't allowed to record at that point, and they were so good. Yeah, and um, yeah, just glad to see her coming back. <laughs> well, and she was the first one that like did what Taylor Swift did was like we record all, all of her stuff. She she was yeah. the first one to kind of yep. like go back go back mm-hmm. and do that of like oh I own the the rights to the songs I'll just re record them so I can get all the money for it. Um, uh, yeah, my, my quick thing on on Joe that I always remember from is: Have you seen her episode of Cribs, MTV Cribs? Yes, yeah. <laughs> where it was like her uncle's house. Yeah. Um. Uh. And it's just like you t- watching it now in context, knowing that they that they were she was just making up as they went along is kind of fantastic. It's got the same energy as that Dakota Johnson limes. Uh, oh yeah, limes. Architecture Digest or whatever. I mean, really, Architecture Digest is just like the now the new version of Crips. That's literally what yeah. it is. It's just a high. I love limes. I love limes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think ultimately what I took away from rewatching Mulan yeah, Rouge, and I'm, I'm excited for this this weekend, is I think it works better as a stage musical because yeah lerman is lerman spends so much of that movie there's so much going on there's these huge huge musical numbers and and i know this is his style and the cutting and everything but like it feels like he is trying so hard to get you to look 
where he wants you to look, but there's so many places he can't that he wants you to look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he can't make up his mind uh, sometimes with it. Yeah. 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 And, and so I think, it, it, you know, they've got these scenes like the, the, the scene when Ewan McGregor first sees Nicole Kidman and like she's coming down out of the ceiling and everyone's watching her and Ewan McGregor's like love struck and then the Baron character is striking a deal to spend the night with her and mm-hmm. it's all happening at the same time and he's trying they've got the whole thing where Toulouse-Lautrec is like moving back and forth between the two boxes mm-hmm. and that's why they get confused between the two of them and I'm just like this would work perfect on stage yeah because you just let the whole thing play out and everybody can decide where to look. and you choreograph the whole thing yep. it's not that issue we, we've, we've talked about with musicals before where too many people are standing still yep. um, like you just choreograph the whole thing and let the audience look around yeah and uh no yeah Moulin rouge when that came out that that's a movie that i know people who love it and who haven't mm-hmm. seen it since it came out and i know people who hate it like like really hate it um because lerman lerman's very much an acquired taste for some people it feels <laughs> like and yeah you know, with his stuff talking about his cutting is like well i find fascinating and he does it in elvis he does it in great gatsby doesn't remember Juliet, where he like the beginning of his films always feel like too cutty. Like he's mm-hmm. very fast and you're almost like, like you're trying to play catch up in the first five minutes. It feels like, and then he slows it down as the movie goes on. It's a very unique choice. And I'm not sure why he does that, but it's like, he always just like boom, 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 boom in the opening. And then just slows mm-hmm. it down as it goes on. Um, now musical I'm seeing soon uh here in la is i'm going to see 1776 they're doing oh the, like all, is that the all female the, like yeah female revival yeah, female yeah, revival. yeah. I, I only i only know about that one because of that drama that went down but <laughs> where yeah where the actress was like yeah i'm only giving like 70 percent or whatever she yeah. said yeah and <laughs> and i was just like yeah if i was directing this i would be doing different choices just i remember like the the kind of like the Broadway gossip of just like, I've never seen everyone's like, I've never seen someone actively like talk poorly about a production while still in it. She, I think it's, mm-hmm. it was a lot of it's taken out of context or, or was just kind of, they, they took the bullet, the bullet points of her saying that where it was like, she was like hating on it the entire time. She wasn't doing that. She was just making certain comments as like, as a director, like, Oh, I might do stuff differently, but people saw it as that she was just actively hating on the show. But I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to see it because I, I like the, uh, the movie version of it. I've always watched the movie version of 1776. It was a, since high school because I know we, I think we watched it. I, think, I don't know if I watched it. I know I watched it in class, but I can't remember if I was introduced to it in class or I found it a different way because I was looking into William Daniels, who plays John Abs in that, mm-hmm. who also is in Boy Meets World, which I was a huge fan of at the time and still am. Um, and... I think I found it that way. And it's it's like known for like being like a musical that had at one point had the longest like gap between songs on Broadway ever. It was like there wasn't a song for like 35 minutes in this musical or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm fascinated to see how they change it in this kind of because like it's like this post Hamilton world is kind of the thing. Where it was like they had to change it up after like, we can't just have all white guys in this m- yeah. musical now after Hamilton, but you also can't just like rip off Hamilton. Exactly. Completely, you know? So you have to kind of, kind of a new version of it. But yeah, I'm excited to see it. I love we're going to theater, Thomas. It's, it's a, it's an important thing. It's important mm-hmm. things. Um, I want to try to go like smaller stuff as well. Like I think some of the best shows we've did, um, in LA that I've been to is like the, like in the, 
by the Amundsen next to it. Like I always forget the name. The, the, like that's the smaller like uh, the one that's in the round. Kind of, it could be in the round or whatever, but the small yeah, the smaller theater. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen some good shows there. It's been fun. I saw Cicely Strong there. I saw for her one woman one woman show that she did mm-hmm. uh, last year. She was great in that. Um, anyway, enough about that. Um, let's get into what we're talking about today. It's part three of our Catherine Bigelow uh, episode. I am Brand Sparks. I'm Thomas Horton. And this is a Nation podcast. And so, as I said, we're talking about Catherine Bigelow this month. And Thomas, what have we discussed in our past two episodes so far regarding Bigelow and her career? We've talked about kind of form versus function with Bigelow, who's somebody who came up through the visual arts world and then got into storytelling and how, you know, her first film, The Loveless, was was kind of motion picture as performance art or yeah. as visual art. And then she started getting into into action and, and into explosions and how but but how her kind of background in, in movement and visual art has really informed her idea of pacing and slowing things down and speeding them up when they need to. Um we also have talked about kind of starting to see this idea of a thesis of like outsiders uh, versus the establishment. It, it really applied to like most of the movies we've watched so far up up till Blue Steel a little bit. Uh, but but especially last week with Point Break and uh, and with Strange Days about kind of this idea of like cops are ineffective. You got to you got to break the lines, break the rules to get things done. And, um, and just kind of, you know, especially with point break, this kind of world, world philosophy, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and bringing in these, you know, with point break, it's all about kind of the calm of the water and, but also the thrill of the, there's this whole kind of weird Buddhist, you know, uh, undertones (laughs) undertones <laughs> spiritualism Spirit, that's what i'm looking spiritualism. for spiritualism yeah, yeah, yeah. throughout um and and but the idea of like obsession and the beauty of obsession and the spiritualism of obsession um which i think we're gonna we're gonna get a little bit more into this week for sure it's fine when you mentioned point break and start t- discussing that i go oh yeah she's in like three movies about water i'm like oh who, what other filmmaker has done that <laughs> the way of water or the weight of water which which yeah. one were you talking the, about the, the weight of water or the, the way water is usually the weight of water which is they're on a boat you have k19 k19 Widowmaker, which we're talking about today also on the water and then point break on the water and i'm like oh yeah because mm-hmm. uh, there were some car- comparisons at the time and because she'll always kind of get these comparisons now i think because of their relationship her and james cameron but also even more so as, as we discussed today of why they're even more connected in the two thousands. Um, but uh, during some of the reviews for Canton Widowmaker, they're like, yeah, her ex-husband also recently just did a movie about um, a, a, a ill-fated like voyage of a, of a ship of some kind. <laughs> um, and I was like, wow, I never thought about that. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> I don't know if that was conscious or they just like were interested in some other things. I think with both of them, we'll, as we'll discuss more with Bigelow here, of why she was interested in that movie um, at that time. Um, yeah, we've talked about that, that outsider role, as you said. We've talked about kind of the establishment stuff, um, the kind of belief systems everyone has. Um, and, and in terms of visually, we've talked about how 
leading it's a leading up to point break she had kind of a different visual style well everything everything kind of felt like paintings in a way like like mm-hmm. still images and i think point break is where she really developed the skills that she would be showing for the rest of her career it's almost like mostly mm-hmm. handheld kind of kind of kind of kinetic kind of fast-paced energy a lot of those films mm-hmm. but yeah you're you're si- i think with this episode today it's it's like strange days is a very interesting kind of midpoint of her career so far as as it is in terms of film film wise um and we're kind of in this kind of whole new world uh for her new transition period with this episode today and what happened as we talked about last week is that strange days this really unique and end up being polarizing tech noir um, was this massive box office failure, only making $8 million with the $42 million budget. And in a way, it was kind of Bigelow's low point uh, at, at that moment, at least, in terms of because of the box office failure. Um, and even crit- like critically, it was polarizing. Like At least all of her other films... I think we're mostly positive up to that point, but Strange Days was so like people loved it or people hated it. Um, so she was kind of at a crossroads. So she started working on a handful of projects. She actually would direct three episodes of the television show Homicide Life on the Street at this point mm. in like 97, 98. Yeah. Um, but outside of those shows, she began working on two projects, uh, The Weight of Water and K-19 Widowmaker. Now, both these are basically being developed at around the same time, and it's kind of a like, what's going to go first? So mm-hmm. today we'll talk about first, the one that was released first, well, that was shown first, that's key, um, shown first uh, in 2000, that's The Weight of Water. So uh, it's one of her less talked about movies. Um, mm-hmm. It's based on Anita Shri- Shriv's Apologize if I butchered that, na- butcher that, butcher that name. Anita Shriv's book, um, uh, The Weight of Water, which Bigelow read when she was shooting Strange Days. And it hmm. was still in manuscript form. She she wrote it in, like, when she saw it in galleys, basically, I mean, it had yet to be published. Uh, she saw it and snatched up the rights and began working on it. Bigelow said she was attracted to the project because it dealt with Norwegian immigrants and her mother's family was all from Norway. And she had heard so many family stories of immigrants coming over and kind of the history of their family. And her mother had just recently passed away and she was kind of making it, she was motivated to make it in her honor. And that's why the, that kind of story, at least the Norwegian part was very personal to her. Um, and that's why she wanted to tackle it. So, so Thomas, what is this movie, the weight of water about? Uh, it's about a, a photojournalist who is in t- supposed to be kind of taking pictures of the yeah. site of these very famous uh, historical murders. Uh, but she goes on this kind of sailing trip with her husband and her brother-in-law and her mm-hmm. brother-in-law's girlfriend to take photos and starts to suspect that things didn't play out the way that historically they are known to. Yeah. And we kind of get flashes of the, the murders uh, back in colonial America, while there is some interpersonal turmoil between the two couples on the on the sailboat. Yeah, it, it's it's very much there. There's one that's a true story with the Norwegian mm-hmm. immigrants of the young young woman played by Sarah Polly, now Oscar winning mm-hmm. Sarah Polly, Academy Award, uh, not according to her child, huh? 
Did you need this? And not according to her child. Did you not see that? Uh-uh. Uh, for April Fool's Day, her like 10-year-old wrote her a letter from the Academy that was like, we accidentally gave you the Oscar. Oh, you that, have to send it back. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. I didn't see that. Um, but yeah, Sarah Pye plays uh, uh, Marin, or Yeah, Marin, I believe, or Marin. Um, Marin. And, and she is coming over from Norway. And you find out kind of why she's coming over from Norway. And she was kind of married off to this man she doesn't love. And that part is, is kind of all based in truth to some extent. And then you have the modern story, which where it's, it's uh, Catherine uh, McCormick who plays Jean, the, the photojournalist. That's all fictionalized. And there's not much on the making of this film, Thomas, if you're, not, you're probably not surprised by that. It's not really a big <laughs> film, but has, it has names in it. It has Sean Penn, who plays Catherine McCormick's husband, uh, Sarah Polly is is the 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 actress from or the character from the 1870s. Elizabeth Hurley plays the the girlfriend of Josh Lucas, who's Sean Penn's brother, is what it is. Um, and with this movie, it's it's reading up a little bit more about it in terms of what people what other people see in it makes me understand a little bit more why Bigelow would do this movie. This kind of she was kind of one person was kind of saying how like the two lead female characters are kind of like doubted in their worlds in some way. And they're trying to draw comparisons to Bigelow in the film world and how this is kind of her first female centric film in a while since blue steel is the thing. And so trying to Mm -hmm. draw comparisons to that. Um, But what are your thoughts on this movie? Because this is one I literally never heard of. Until we decided yeah, to do this I didn't series. know this one existed. Um, so what were your thoughts on it? Um, I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, the, I mean, obviously the murder part I got, um, and it was, it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, whatever was going on on that boat went over my head and I feel like I'm pretty good at, at yeah. interpreting film. Um, and and you know if if it was meant to be impressionistic, then fine. But they seemed to it seemed to me like they wanted me to like have some big realization. But it's like she's like suspects that her husband is attracted to Elizabeth Hurley, or maybe yeah. he's having an affair with Elizabeth Hurley, or maybe he's got a long history with Elizabeth yeah. Hurley. Yeah. And 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 then there's it's just absolutely ridiculous ending scene uh you might have seen my letterbox review i did i did i did uh spoilers i'm sorry but uh you know it it comes up to this and like it the way it's executed makes the like the parallel is meant to be you know we saw this kind of crime of passion in the past and a woman who was kind of pushed way too far and denied love and, Mm -hmm. and and what that can lead you to do and so then we come back to you know the 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 main character has been seeing all these similarities between her and and sarah polly in the past and so we come back to this big moment on the boat and then it's just kind of an accident anyway like she doesn't she thinks maybe for a second i don't like not even that like she you you see her kind of looking at elizabeth early but then elizabeth early just falls overboard it's not anyone's fault yeah but then sean penn goes in after her and then she goes in after Sean Penn, and then Josh Lucas saves her. Yeah, but they can't save Sean Penn, and it's just like yeah. Last, last spoilers here on that one. Yeah, 
Yeah, but but especially coming on like like the 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 big, I was always more interested in the in the past story. Yes, um, yes, and and it felt and there was so much going on in the past that every time we came back to the present and it was just kind of like is is my husband cheating on me? Yeah, felt really slow. Yep. Um, and I thought the the review that you sent kind of talks about how great the production design is and everything. I thought the movie felt really small. Uh huh. Yes. And I, I mean, I get it's, it's set on like a tiny Island and a sailboat, Yeah. but, but there are ways to make that like, like, I don't, I didn't think the loveless felt small and it's set in this tiny town and probably yeah. has like three sets, four sets between, between all of it. But, um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I, after strange days, I was like, I'm, you know, just because I haven't heard of it doesn't mean it's not good. But this one, I was like, yeah. I, I, I feel like it was trying to say something and I, I don't, it, it just, it just whooshed over my head. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, I, I don't think I talked about production time for this one. I think it might've been 1019 Widowmaker, but like, I think with this one, what I kind of said and what I felt like I, I felt in the moment, I go, neither story's gaining momentum. Yeah. Like it felt like because it, it, it's doing two storylines, especially ones that's so separated by time it's really hard and because what you're doing is you're having to cut back and forth between two storylines and if one of them isn't as interesting as another it actually harms both stories Mm -hmm. because every time you kind of get going in one as you said you go like oh we have to go to this one now and what i felt was that i think she has two interesting ideas at play but she's trying to tell them both at the same time. And, she, mm-hmm. and, and, and the script, the script is written by Christopher Kyle, who's going to be mentioned later for K-19 Widowmaker and Alice Arlen, who was co-writer on Nor Ephron with Nor Ephron's Silkwood and Cookie. If you remember that movie, Oh yeah. Um, she co-wrote, she co-wrote the script. Um, I think she probably wrote it first and Christopher Kyle came in later if I had to guess, but it, it felt like one is an erotic thriller and one mm-hmm. and one's like this like period piece like crucible esque movie. Yeah. And they're trying to draw comparisons, like really kind of reaching in some cases. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's just not working. Everything kind of becomes muddled in the process. Yeah. And it's funny, I, I actually looked up like the Goodreads for the book mm-hmm. because I was like, well, maybe just like something didn't come across in adaptation. Mm-hmm. And everyone in the everyone in the like Goodreads for the book is kind of like I don't really see the like, <laughs> where these two stories line up. Yeah. So, so you know maybe maybe it was a kind of doomed from the start. Yeah. But but yeah, I kept you know as as you start to see Sarah Polly's character snap, you're kind of like oh this woman's gonna snap, and then and then to ultimately like not yeah just have everything that happens be out of her control is mm-hmm. is a weird like it's not that like was, she yeah like turns the wheel so the jib knocks elizabeth hurley off or anything it is just like she goes she's there and she sees it yeah she sees it yeah it's not like it's not like she immediately jumps in to save her no. either then like sean penn jumps in to save her yeah. so it's just like wh- where is the agency in this it's it's always weird to have a climax in which uh you know your main character has like zero agency yeah. and that happens here yeah and it's 
it's like one and like kind of hearing her reasoning of why to do it it like makes me want to like it like it more and that's again it makes me understand the Nor- norwegian immigrant story more and mm-hmm. it's, like I said, it's just more it's just kind of more compelling and like if you said hey if you said like hey i'm gonna do a movie it's Catherine bigelow it's gonna be an erotic thriller and it's gonna be about a couple like on a boat together stuck in the water i'm like that sounds great and if the movie was just about that and they really mm-hmm. went into that more that'd be a good movie or then if you said hey we're gonna tell a story about this heinous murder in the 1870s and we're gonna try to find out who did it and if the person who was convicted was actually innocent or guilty that's a great story as well putting those two together it just feels like a, a big reach is the thing and mm-hmm. while i but i think her her direction comes through i think well even though the 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 the, the part is questionable of the ending on the boat she knows how to direct kind of that action of the boat stuff is the thing like i think that was well directed not the choices and stuff of like the showing the character observing and not really being active but like just mm-hmm. the, the the direction and the cinematography was vastly different than the rest of the movie it felt yeah. like and was an improvement i was like oh why was i wish this movie was kind of done this way the entire time was the thing um but yeah it's it's the the hurley and pen relationship is very odd like you said it's like you're like did they have an affair before and they're meeting up again? Is that what's happened? Yeah, that's there's what that, I that gather. Scene when she's like looking at the cross and you think like was she in the car when he like what was? Yeah, because had the wreck or whatever. Yeah, but like yeah, is that where she got the scars from? Because she mentions she has scars too. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um. It's yeah. It's 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 it's, it's <clears throat> yeah. It's 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 probably. I, I won't I mean I think we're gonna know when we kind of do this, but I feel like it's probably her biggest misfire. Bigelow's mm-hmm. biggest misfire is this movie. Yeah, it feels it, yeah, I, I don't have much a lot of good th- I, I do like the score in the film kind of. I think it made me notice how big of a uh aspect score is to Bigelow's films. It was mm-hmm. I noticed in that one. And then I began to notice it throughout most of her movies and how oh She's starting to use score a lot more in her films than she was kind of doing before. And it kind of starts with Weight of Water. That's why I was like, this could be a great a rock film with this like jazz-infused score. Like it feels like it's trying to be a neo-noir. And we know she's just done that kind of with Strange Days. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't really commit to it either way is the thing. But yeah, I mean, was there anything you did like about the movie, Thomas? You say you like um, the the the, eight, the the eighteen seventy story is the better of the two. Yeah, yeah, I was I was interested in that, and and I mean I think it's pretty clear from the start. Maybe it's just because the way it's cast, it's like Kieran Hines and and Sarah Polly mm-hmm. are they're the only really known actors, so you know it's going to kind of revolve around them. But yeah, I thought that was a interesting little mystery to get into, yeah. and uh, I thought it if you just take that storyline i thought it developed the pacing was well in the way that it developed where you're kind of yes. like okay this guy's a creep okay maybe there's a little bit more to this girl then we realize oh yeah. she really really loves her brother yeah maybe it's just that her sister is is so mean um with cutting back and forth you just lose yeah a lot of that momentum because like i the thing i felt like in the in the 18 1870s story i was like 
oh, you could make this picnic at Hanging Rock if you wanted to. Like, you could venture into, like, using mm-hmm. the location a little bit more, like, almost like folk horror in a way if you wanted to go that route was the thing. And Yeah, like the witch, yeah, you know, something like that. There's, like, moments of it where you think it's going that way, and then it just, like, no, we're not going that way. Because we got go, mm-hmm. to go back to the 1990s or, two, or 2000 and see Elizabeth Hurley. <clears throat> just... Yeah. And just have everybody stare. There was one scene where it was like everyone was just staring at everyone else. We were just cutting back and forth between each person looking at it. At the other at one. The other one. Yeah. Was that when she's on the boat when she's like sunbathing? Is that the scene you're talking about? No. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, there yeah. was that yeah, one. Because it's 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 the three of them like looking at each other, yeah. and you're like, and and but then there's like one shot of Josh Lucas like also looking. You're like, well, there's everybody. <laughs> That's all of them. They're all looking at each other. Women's motives are always more concealed than men's. So you think Jean's right about it being the woman? It's always the woman. I can't see a woman using an axe. Lizzie Borden? She was acquitted. Yeah, because 12 men on the jury couldn't see a woman using an axe. Maron must have used an axe every day chopping wood. But why would she kill them? When a woman kills, it's generally her spouse. For obvious reasons. But her sister and sister-in-law, it doesn't make much sense. It is remotely possible to hang the right guy. Come on, Rich. What's the fun in that? When talking about preparation of the film, Bigelow said that that said the reason why she felt she could transition to a less action-heavy film was because she always works from character first. And she said this many times in several interviews throughout multiple films. This statement kind of stays true. She goes, I'm attracted to character, and and I always work from the character out. It really is dictated by the character and by the story. She said even if it's an action movie, she never starts with a set piece. She always starts the character and works her way out towards a set piece, basically. After the film was finished, it premiered in September 2000 at the Toronto International Film Festival, but it got held up in in distribution. Like Near Dark before it and Blue Steel before, The Weight of Water had troubles with making it to the big screen after being finished. It would not open in France until july 2002 and it wouldn't open in the u.s until november 2002 so over Mm. two years after its initial premiere it would be seen as a critical and box office failure only grossing three hundred and twenty one thousand dollars against a 16 million dollar budget wow yeah oh my god so yeah but while that premiered in 2000 it was actually released after Bigelow's next film, which is <laughs> K-19 Widowmaker. And Thomas, what is K-19 Widowmaker about? Uh, you know, it's funny. I have to admit, I um, <clears throat> had always thought that it was called The Widowmaker because it was like a, poten- like a, like a super effective submarine. You know, it was like the one to look out for because it's going to take out the other submarines and yeah. make a lot of widows. That is not, not it. <laughs> what this movie is about. <laughs> Um, it's about a, a, a Russian sub that is uh, kind of believed to be cursed, mm-hmm. but it's about a, a, a voyage, um, the maiden voyage of this Russian submarine where absolutely everything goes wrong yep. and um, and kind of a, a survival story about how they're going to get back uh, home on a submarine where that could possibly explode in a yeah. giant nuclear meltdown at any moment. And essentially start World War Three. That's basically what it is. Yeah. It's during the Cold War. Um, it's based on actual events. And yeah, I, I coming into this, 
I I remember when it came out, and I was like, okay, it's Harrison Ford and a and a submarine movie. And like you said, when I saw K nineteen, The Widowmaker, mm-hmm. I just thought this is a really cool submarine that just like wreaks havoc on everywhere it goes. Also, didn't realize the main yeah. characters were Russian yep. and not American because you're like, it's Harrison Ford. <laughs> didn't see that being a. I remember when this came out. I just kind of I was ten, two thousand two, right? Yeah, yeah, I was. Uh, I was ten at the time, and and I uh, loved Indiana Jones, but I also my my dad and I watched all of the Jack Ryan movies. We were really mm-hmm. into to the Jack Ryan movies, so I just kind of assumed, when this one came out, I was like, I guess all right, guess we're gonna see that this one. And my Harrison, parents were like, this is Harrison Ford's Hunt for October yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and my parents were like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're allowed to see that one at, at ten, and um. So I remember like wanting to see it when it came out and then yeah. it just completely this this was my first time watching it for um for for this episode, yeah. Yeah, and I again like I said I I knew she had made it cuz it's it was kind of uh shown as like the one of the er, one of the earliest like 100 million dollar movies made by a a female director was the thing. Mm-hmm. Um it's also says here it's at that point, I believe it was the most expensive independent film made at that time because it is an indie film technically, oh, wow. and we'll mm. get, we'll get into that later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's yeah. Well, I don't want to say too much. We'll, we'll discuss as we get deeper into it. But yeah, it's it's a. I said it's a, it's a bad back to back for her, is what I'm saying. With with, with the weight <laughs> of water and, and connecting the Widowmaker, I think this one's the more interesting of the two films. And I and, mm-hmm. and we'll discuss more of why, um, but I, and I think there's some interesting choices being made from someone like Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson. Harrison Ford specifically, when looking at the time and place of his career, um, but yeah. So, and also, I think the key thing with this movie is no matter how it does box office wise, critically. I think this is the pivot point for her where she mm-hmm. becomes like, I'm going to be doing more historical movies is the thing, like historical mm-hmm. events in some way and really mm-hmm. dive into how she is as a director. We've, we've seen before with point break, how she really dives in and like is researching and goes and like living the life of like a surfer or whatever, or if it's blue steel and researching about cops and stuff, she's really big into that. And this is where it really begins to turn into a more historical version of that, where she's really research, researching and exploring the world of these characters and everything. Mm-hmm. So in the mid-1990s, Catherine Bigelow's agent, I think it was in 95, is when her agent's like, hey, I think you should get involved in making movies deal with historical events. And so she started taking meetings around town, around Hollywood, about people who were looking to make historical movies. And so she met with, or she was contacted by National Geographic, who was looking to make some feature films. And they wanted to talk with her about several kind of ideas they were developing with their company. And she talked with them, and the one that really caught her eye was this Russian documentary that touched on the bare bones of the Soviet submarine K-19's ill-fated maiden, maiden voyage. And soon she would become involved in that and British, the British production company, working tile productions, which has done, I think all, a lot of Richard Curtis's movies we talked about, like Notting Hill mm-hmm. and all that. They began to produce it. And Bigelow 
was super excited about kind of tackling this movie because she wanted to, she thought it was interesting kind of taking Russian characters, characters who at this point in time and kind of still are seen as a villain <laughs> in American cinema a lot of the times. And she thought it'd be interesting to see if you could portray them as heroes and most importantly as humans. So she would have an active role in developing the script. First, she worked with Louis uh, Nara um, and then Christopher Kyle, who worked on The Weight of Water. Um, I think Lewis gets story by credit. Christopher Kyle gets screenplay by credit. Um, as the script was being worked on, Bigelow began research and she approached this subject like she was a journalist. She started making several trips to Russia and interviewing survivors and gaining as much access to Russian and Soviet documents and information as possible. At first, people were very apprehensive about this American woman trying to ask questions about an event that was hidden from Soviet Union and Russian Russian citizens mm-hmm. for decades is the thing. Basically, this, these people, these men, saved the world from a World War III and then could not talk about it <laughs> is basically what happened mm-hmm. in real life. She also said it was kind of hard to gain access because she had zero or little or she had zero military background is what it was. Uh, she said the first person that embraced the project was the widow of Captain Nikolai Zatyev. I apologize for, again, butchering that name. But that's that's the character that was the basis of Harrison Ford's character. Bigelow said mm-hmm. she spent hours and hours talking with his widow and asking countless questions and seeing old photographs of him. And finally, his widow told her, you must tell this story. She would also give Bigelow a photograph of her husband that Bigelow kept with her the entire run of the film as kind of inspiration. It was like in her production office the entire time. Uh, soon after that, many of survivors began opening up to Bigelow about their experience on K-19, which, by the way, was not called The Widowmaker in real life. It was called Hiroshima, or Hiroshima mm. was what it was. It was the nickname it got after everything. Um, but these survivors who were now in their 80s and most of whom were suffering from radiation poisoning began to talk to her about what happened on this voyage. She would also begin looking at the captain's actual journal that detailed the beat-by-beat beat account of what happened from the time he woke up when he got the news about the nuclear reactor leaking. Billow said the script was in constant flux because of the amount of information they were getting from, from Russia and the survivors and everything. They learned about they learn about oh, that's wild. yeah they learned about the real people based on they learned about the real person based on Liam Neeson's character and on Harrison Ford's character. They said that Neeson's character was more beloved by the crew and was like one you wanted to drink with, but Ford's character was the one that everyone trusted when the going got tough to make the hard decisions. Hmm. But the survivors weren't the only ones to open up at this point. The Russian government also began to do the same. They began declassifying documents for Bigelow so she could read them and find out information about this voyage. She was soon given access to visit the actual K-19 submarine that had been decommissioned, making her the first American and Western civilian to visit the ship and the Russian Northern Fleet Naval Base. Cool. Thanks for the offer, but I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't do that? You wouldn't do that, Thomas? No. <laughs> no, just like I wouldn't do a Chernobyl tour. Um, <laughs> there's got to be radiation left over in that thing. I think it apparently the submarine went for years, by the way. It was not just like 
they ended it. I think that K nineteen kept going for a bit. Let me see. I want to be. <laughs> that doesn't make me feel any better. There's houses <laughs> with asbestos here. That doesn't yeah. mean I want to go spend any time with. No. Them. Uh, yeah, it was decommissioned in 1990. Is what it was. Wow. Um. <laughs> but also, the people getting on that submarine at the time had no yeah. idea what had happened. On no, it. probably not. At that point, they hit it all. Yeah, you're right. Um. Uh, they also, a side thing, they had like several construction deaths when they were making the. A submarine. This is eight eight workers died building the submarine. Is what it was. So that's probably where it yeah. ga- started gaining this kind of unlucky. Yeah, they, they, I think they they talk about that at the beginning of the movie that they had already had like a de- and then obviously they have the doctor die yeah. <laughs> at the beginning. Very odd. Yeah, it just gets run over by a car. Um, but yeah, so so yeah, when talking about fighting to get information about the events, Bigelow said, "I just don't take no for an answer." I think your job as a director is that the, for every door that closes, you've got to open two more. Uh, the project almost stopped moving forward after the Kursk disaster, is what I, I believe that's what it's called, K-U-R-S-K, uh, in Russia, where a Russian submarine sunk, trapping all of its crew aboard. And this happened in two, 2000, and she kind of was wondering, should I keep making this movie? Like In the time where they just had this kind of really bad submarine accident, and she kind of decided decided to move forward, feeling the film was important enough to to do because to kind of honor people as heroes. Um, but even before all of that, Canteen uh, the Widowmaker was put into turnaround at Working Tile Productions when Universal announced they were making their own submarine movie, U five seven one, and Working Title's like, yeah, let's not do it now because someone else is making a movie. <laughs> let's move on. Um, this is what resulted in Bigelow going off to make The Weight of Water. She was basically ready to go do K-19. Oh, gotcha. That fell through. She went off and made The Weight of Water instead. Uh, during this time, the rights for K-19 would eventually be bought by an overseas independent company called Intermedia. Uh, and that's how it became this big independent production. Because it was also at this time hmm. that Harrison Ford became attached to the project. Bigelow said there was only a few people on their short list for the project, and Ford was at the top of their list. Uh, I think she was very interested in kind of telling the story of a, a Russian crew and, like, Russian heroes, but using it through the, the, the I guess, the prism of Harrison Ford's American hero mm-hmm. image is the thing. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Harrison Ford said that he was attracted to the project because he was incredibly moved by their story, by the story of their struggle. He said this was a defining event of their lives and they lived without being able to tell a story for a long time. Once Ford and Liam Neeson were cast, Bigelow began putting both the cast and some of the crew through rigorous training to understand the inner workings of a submarine. They all underwent atomic physics training at MIT. And this is this is like the DP and everybody. It was like a lot of people that were involved in it. <laughs> and the cast and crew went through a two-week boot camp training for the shoot of how to work on a, a submarine. By the end of it, they were considered a well-oiled machine, and she even had like the extras in the film learn or know how to work within the submarine because she said, I didn't want anyone to be like just like turning knobs in the back and not knowing why they were doing it. So she tried to get people, even as extras, who understood how to work on a submarine. Mm-hmm. So now after boot camp and production began, Thomas, let's talk about it. Do you have favorite scenes in this movie? I mean, or what are your <clears throat> what are your thoughts? I guess is maybe we'll start there with this one. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, my first thought watching it was um, 
that I think uh, Craig Craig Mazin had to have like internally like some something within this to do Chernobyl because there there is this like um, I, I think something the the thing that kind of blew me away about Chernobyl is also present here which is like a this idea of like radiation is like a as like a ghost in a horror movie or something yeah. like it's 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 just always there and you can't do anything about it and, and b the way that both of these Chernobyl and this movie kind of you, they use radiation as a like physical manifestation of bureaucracy. It's mm. it's like you know, in any other time, it's like okay, well you know if if people can't make their mind up, that's fine. We'll just wait until they do make their mind up. But when there's literal death hanging in the air around you, like you don't have that luxury, and and so that's that's kind of when when you see these when you see these guys getting pulled out of the reactor room after that, that first time they go in, it is, Oh man, it is horrifying. Yeah. And you know, the, the build up to it of like, we're, we're only going to send them in for 10 minutes. Yeah. We're going to put them these chemical suits in and, and, and Neeson's got that great line of like chemical suits. I might as well put raincoats on like this is yeah. not going, this is literally doing absolutely nothing for them. Yeah. Um, and, and you're like, Oh, maybe he'll be fine. And then they pull them out after the first 10 minutes and they're like vomiting and their flesh is burned. And yeah, and everybody's like, "Oh, you know, you're not that bad. Yeah, you're fine. It's just, it is. Yeah, that sequence is. It, and you've yeah. got, um, yeah, Peter Sarsgaard being like, Peter "I'm not Sarsgaard going in," crying and shaking yeah. and clinging to the wall. And the the one guy that we've kind of been introduced as as his kind of assistant, you know, going in without him and him being kind of the first one to just be absolutely wrecked by it. Um, yeah. It yeah that that whole sequence was I was I was hooked I was horrified. Um, yes, I agree. I think the issue with this movie is that because I wrote about this in Letterbox and it was because trying I was trying to kind of put my thoughts together on this film is that one of her we talked about this in Strange Days is that she's a and, and near dark she's a very patient filmmaker. And she loves like building the world out before really hopping into the plot. You could say mm-hmm. doesn't strange days, doesn't near dark, doesn't in a lot of these movies, even point break to an extent, you don't really find out the twist until halfway through the movie about like, Oh, what like the actual conflict is in a way. And this is the one where I think it's almost like it hurts her in the process. Yes. If, yeah. I feel, like, I, I feel like it hurts her. I, it's almost like it is setting itself up to be like, I was really worried in the first 45 minutes that it was just going to pale in comparison. It's going to be like, it was going to be Crimson Tide and it was going to pale in comparison to Crimson Tide. Yeah. Uh, because you don't have, obviously Neeson and, and Ford are two great kind of leading men to be clashing, but you don't have that supporting cast of Crimson Tide, which is what we talked about yeah. in our Crimson Tide episode is like, everyone the, the stacked cast and you don't know which side anyone's going to land on. And mm-hmm. that is what is so exciting about that movie. And <clears throat> with this one, yeah, I, I, there's the, the external, cause that's also the thing about Crimson Tide is like, ultimately the external conflict is not, it's not that big of a deal. It's like, you just lost radio contact. Just wait. Yeah. And, and it'll be fine. It's the internal conflict that are these two egos bumping up against each other that makes it so insane yeah. and raises the stakes so much. And this one, the external conflict is huge, yeah. obviously. And, and, and you don't, 
I don't think you need the, but, but it spends the first 45 minutes setting it up to be about that internal conflict. And then when it is kind of, it, it almost reminded me of that scene that, um, uh, it's become kind of a, a meme from the last Jedi about like, uh, why why hondo no tell plan it's like, <laughs> it's like you know if, if if you're you're take two seconds you, you know they have that like so they they stage a mutiny yeah and they, they handcuff him to the pipe and they bring liam neeson in and then liam neeson saves him and then harrison ford's like you idiots if we go take help from the americans and this blows up it's going to start world war three it's like say that 20 minutes ago dude like yeah. come on <laughs> everyone would have been on board um so yeah, I think I think there's a balance of it's almost like with Weight of Water where it's this idea of like treating both storylines equally when one is obviously more engaging. Yeah. And I think with this one it's it's kind of the same way. It's like the the Neeson and Ford in theory Neeson and Ford butting heads should be pretty powerful, but when you've got a nuclear reactor about to explode, that's going to be taking my yeah. attention. And and for them to just kind of like sweep it away you know once they give neeson the gun and he's yeah. like i'm um neeson gets it his character gets it yeah. he's like all of that all of that is petty we have to focus on on this yeah. and i'm like yeah exactly because yeah, yeah. <laughs> he knows he's like yeah yeah, yeah. yeah you're the one to do it because neeson doesn't want to be the one being like oh yeah let me let me run this ship when we could start a whole yeah let's let's war. sink it let's sink it let's sink it down and kill everyone on this ship yeah. um so yeah, I think I think it's it's I don't think it is hurt as much by trying to strike that balance as Weight of Water is because yeah. it does resolve itself. You know, yeah. once once Neeson uncuffs him, then it's like we're all in on yes. on fixing this this thing. Um, but and and I do think you know the stuff is really well done of of when he is making him dive again, and that one guy uh, is he in Mad Men? I think he was he used to be on Mad Men. Uh, is like like running for the hatch and you know the one guy like jumps off like yeah. I, I think that that scene is really well done but um but yeah i, I was it, it, it kind of kind of like when i was always like let's get back to sarah polly and the murder i was always kind of like let's get back to the nuclear reactor instead of of this this big kind of these the politics of it all and and so ultimately i don't yeah i, I don't think it hinders it as much i don't think the movie is not successful because of that i just think it could have been a lot better if they had just yeah. really leaned into the the nuclear reactor stuff um and yeah like you said if if i think you could get to it so much faster i obviously the idea is he ford pushes the boat to its limits and then it and then that happens but um yeah i do th i think they spend a little too much time in the like first act being like this guy's the worst we hate him and then yeah. It, it doesn't feel like that much of a payoff when I, I think the big moment is meant to be when Neeson's like, you have to ask him and it's like, he's taught for yeah. something, but the payoff doesn't feel that effective. Yeah. Necessarily. It's like, I, I made the, the thing I wrote down for me. I was like, okay. I was like the second half is better than the first. I said, because I think by that it's because everything you're listening to, like the stuff you like is all in the back half of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Of course. And I think she starts giving them interesting choices to make or complex choices mm -hmm. where it's, it's where Peter Sarsgaard, like it's a great moment when Peter Sarsgaard's like, screw it. I'm the only one that can save us. Yeah. 
and he yeah. decides to go in. It's a and Ford great and moment. Ford goes in after him. Yeah, it's, yeah all of that stuff they, is is when Ford comes down, he's like, "Where is he?" And they're like, "He's in there." Yeah, and it, it's just yeah, it's great. And there's this one moment, and I can't remember where exactly it is, but I just it was the shot that got me. It's towards the back half, and it's before he goes in the Pierce Rockford, but he's it's when he's having to make a decision, and Bigelow has her, the camera focused on his back, and Ford gives this great performance just by seeing his like the back of his head because Mm -hmm. you can tell by the way his body language changes it feels like he's completely overwhelmed by everything and Mm -hmm. he's almost like oh my god what am i doing and then he turns Mm -hmm. around and in the middle of the turn his body language changes and he's like okay i'm the captain i gotta be i gotta act like a captain Mm -hmm. and it was like Oh, Ford's giving a really good performance. Take away the questionable Russian accent that he's doing throughout the movie. <laughs> hey, I I appreciate him for, for not pulling a um. What's the what's the Tom Cruise? Uh, Far and away. The, no, the the, the, the Nazi. Oh, Valkyrie. The, Valkyrie. Valkyrie. Yeah, when they they have him speak German for like ten seconds out of the first scene, and then they're just like, "All right, we're done with that. He's American." <laughs> <laughs> but no, he like him and Neeson try at least is the thing, and mm-hmm. like. Once you get into it, you kind of just forget the accent. I feel like at first, because mm-hmm. at first I was like, "Oh, is he gonna try an accent here?" Because he, for for three scenes in the beginning, he doesn't talk. <laughs> it's just showing mm-hmm. him going places. I was like, "Are they gonna like not have him talk the entire movie? This is gonna be interesting." But now he talks, and he has he hits like certain words where he adds like a mm-hmm. Russian inflection to it. But no, he does a really good. I think he does a really good performance as like a captain who's who's torn by all this is the thing mm-hmm. and someone you know i think i think uh the ending kind of drives home i don't know that this kind of character journey is successfully pulled off through the rest of the film but it's it's obvious by the ending that there's this conflict between like he wants to project himself as someone who doesn't care yeah. if people like him or not yes. but it's obvious with his like his father's history and like yeah. like he wants to be he wants to be a good leader he wants to be a good communist um and and you know at the end it's this idea of of he he does feel appreciated yeah. at at the end and it obviously is meaningful to him. I don't know that they they nail that journey throughout, but but by the end you can kind of yeah, understand yeah. that about his character. And it, the father stuff's interesting because yeah, it says early on like Neeson's like I've heard two things about your father, and I'm not sure which one's true. He's like what two things? And it's like one that he was like a hero, and two that he was like he died in the died in prison or the gulags. He goes well those are both true and it's like mm-hmm. and so now you're like okay this is the Ford's character this is how he is like he's he's living up to his father's reputation of being a hero but also knows that like the the downside of what could happen with yeah. doing the right thing and there is that great moment where like um at the end when when he, like, they're like when when Neeson's like they could put you away for this he was just like well it's the family tradition is what he says type, <laughs> type thing uh, yeah. And yeah, it's like there's really good moments of that back half, and he, even early on, I'm not saying there's bad moments in the back in the first half. Like I think I like the bit where they're doing the kind of um exercise where they're breaking through the ice to like shoot mm-hmm. off the the missile, and and Neeson's just like this guy's a like he's irresponsible. Again, there's again elements of like Jeremy Renner and Hurt Locker in a way is that. Mm-hmm. Mackie is like Neeson where he's like this guy's insane he doesn't care about anyone he's gonna kill us all 
And that's how Neeson feels about Ford here. And then you just, I kind of like this moment where they broke into the ice. Neeson and Ford had this really good argument between one another of like, what are you do, like, what you should be doing this, or what you should be doing. And then they had that moment where all the all the guys are like playing like soccer up on the like the ice of the of where they're at where they've broken through, and it's just kind of this nice like little moment of these people like just yeah we're in the middle of basically a cold war and they're just like still kind of just kids a lot of them and they're mm-hmm. just playing soccer or football or whatever it is and i feel like another filmmaker wouldn't do that so i do think taking the time with certain things is really really helps her here but it's just it's difficult when you're in a submarine and for an hour of it you're kind of not really pushing a plot forward and the yeah. internal conflict just isn't as strong because like you said with Crimson Tide, not to compare it that well, but it's like the ego thing is a big thing with Crimson Tide, but it's the big question is like, Oh, is my ego going to get in the way of like America surviving a nuclear war It's kind of what mm-hmm. it is. It's like Denzel's like, Oh, we should wait. And Hackman's like, no, we should go. And it's like, and they're both kind of questioning this ego's going to get in the way of us starting a war. This ego's in the way of us not starting the war and us dying or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this is just kind of like, oh, yeah, he took my position on the ship. And Neeson from the beginning is like, I'm okay with it. Like, I said yeah. from the beginning, this ship was not ready. <laughs> like, like, I like her opening where it's like they're doing the big, like, you think it's this big, like, battle. And then you realize, oh, wait, this is just an exercise. Again, another exercise, like, kind of like you had Point Break do it. You had Blue Steel do it where you open with this like an exercise of come some kind at the beginning of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's kind of my thoughts is that, that it's harder to do action action and con- she has some really great action and confined spaces. It just doesn't fully take off into the back half of the movie. You will be in my report for leaving your post and you will be in mine. You needlessly endangered this boat and its crew. 200 million Soviet citizens are depending on us, on us, Captain Vostrokov, to save them from nuclear attack. You risk them as well. I took this boat and these men to the edge because we need to know where it is. These 120 men are a crew now because they achieved something together that they did not think they could do. Next time, when it is not a drill, they will go to the edge and past it and die if necessary because that is what their duty demands of them. You were lucky, Captain. This time, I hope I'm on another boat when your luck runs out. Moving on to Onset Life with this. So the film would shoot for 16 weeks in Nova Scotia, just like Weight of Water, um, mm-hmm. and several other locations throughout Canada. It also seems they might have shot some scenes in Moscow, is what it read in, the, in one of the interviews I saw. Um, and keep in mind, this is only a few years after Waterworld, so people were deathly afraid of shooting on water for budget reasons, mm-hmm. um, but they did shoot on water for this movie. Uh, and to put, and also to give Bigelow credit, she delivered the movie on time and on budget is the thing. So she didn't go over. Uh, when talking about shooting on water, Bigelow said, from working on Point Break, I learned that working on water is an area that even a director can't control. Um, once you relegate yourself to that, you realize that you've got to be, you've got to be painfully flexible. The production bought an old Russian nuclear sub that had been decommissioned, and that became the set, the basis of their sets for this movie. Um, and it was built kind of on the water. Uh, everything was built to scale, making the set extremely tight. 
they had to widen certain sections so that cameras could move freely within the set because you wanted to kind of have move through like through the kind of uh, corridors with ease. Um, and it was Jeff Cronenwith who shot the movie. Is what it was. Who Cronenwith who shot Gone Girl, Social Network, Girl Dragon Tattoo, Fight Club. Uh, I think Canting the Widowmaker was his third movie. Is what it was. Yeah. Well, did a lot of music videos. I think Pride for Fincher. When it came to working with Bigelow. Ford seems to have loved loved it. When asked about what it's like to work with a female director, Ford says, and you know, Ford's possibly irritated way, she's the first one I, woman director I've worked with, but I, would, I wouldn't have done it if I thought of her as a woman director. She's a director and she's proven that. So kind of, he's trying to say, I don't really care about that. She's a great director. I want to work with great directors. Uh, he mm-hmm. said, one of Catherine's biggest talents is visualization. And she was very collaborative with the actors in letting us find motivations for the kinds of movements that reinforce the reality of the space. When asked in February of just this year of 2023, Ford was asked what were some of the movies that he felt were underappreciated at the time of their release. And he named this as one of the two that he felt were one of the ones he made that should have gotten more love. He goes, I think it's a good movie. That's why I'm proud of it. Was was Firewall his his other one? Uh, no, forty two, forty two. Oh Sarah yeah, Bozeman. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that might be a little little foreshadowing of saying what was underappreciated because the film wasn't a big success. Uh, it was released in July two thousand two, and the film had a ninety million dollar budget. Some a lot of people are saying it's a hundred million dollars with with marketing and everything. So Bigelow became one of the first women to to direct a movie that had a budget bigger than a hundred million. It would only gross $65.7 million at the box office. Um, so that's three box office failures in a row. Well, between the two of us collectively misremembering this movie as like a like a big war action film, was it was it marketed that way? Is that why I'm I'm thinking that? I'm, I, I definitely saw a trailer for this yes. when it was coming out. Um I think it was like people didn't know like are like the Russians, the good guys here. It was, that she, there was a number that came out. Oh, it was the sum of all fears. They talked about how in summer of all mm-hmm. fears was like the Russians were the bad guys in that. And so, and that is also a Jack Ryan movie. Yes. So that's without Harrison Ford. Yes. Um, it's the first one without Harrison Ford after the first, after those last two. Um, yeah. Roger Ebert's review is like, it's like Das Boot. And I'm like, that's not going to get audiences. <laughs> Referencing <laughs> Das Boot is not going to get audiences in the, in the seats. Yeah. And so I think it was just people didn't really. And so, and we'll, we'll go into this now is Bigelow kind of said like, it's not a summer release movie. This should be released somewhere else. She goes, I didn't basically, she, she thought it was weird that this movie was competing against Spider-Man and men in black too. Um, mm-hmm. She told The Guardian, I think it's not necessarily well suited for some release. It's the kind of film that's going to have a long life, hopefully. I see it more of a Schindler's List than the Spider-Man. Call me crazy, is what she said. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it feels like Absolutely. they were trying to make this high-octane action film when it's there is action in it. There's literally there's one missile fired, and it's a, it's a yeah. test. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and yeah, but even with that, the film would receive mixed reviews. It's still, it, it was more positive than negative. I will say um, with many praising the action of the cast, but also some who thought the action and cast weren't that good. Um, Roger Ebert would give it three out of four stars saying K-19 draws out the suspense about as far as, as po- about as far as possible. And Bigelow is an expert technician who never stops, who never steps wrong and is skilled at exploiting the personal qualities of Ford and Neeson to add another level of uncertainty. 
Um, Bigelow also, also said she showed the film to some of the Russian survivors. And while some had complaints about the film's inaccuracies, many praised the film and Ford's performance specifically. It's 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 also it's interesting when it hasn't really gained a life since then because it's it's only been released on DVD, similar to Strange Days. It's never been released on streaming to my knowledge, never on Blu-ray. And so it really hasn't been given any like it hasn't been rediscovered in any way. Um mm-hmm. I don't know if it needs to be. <laughs> Harrison Ford thinks so. Harrison Ford thinks so. So I so you could argue yes. I think it gives a good performance. And I, I read an article um by robert daniels who i think on, on ebert's website where he's recently wrote this how like canteen widowmaker kind of is the the pivot of ford's career because of its not being successful is that ford starts kind of doing a lot of less nuanced roles it feels like mm. or he tries to do like more like it feels like more paycheck movies maybe is the thing or he tries to find some sort of magic where like he does Firewall, as you said, not long after this. Um, he does. I did ho- see Firewall when it came out. So he does Hollywood. Hom- I told my parents, I was like, hey, you didn't let me see that sub movie. I'm seeing this. I'm seeing cybersecurity movie. <laughs> yeah, I've watched that several times. Weirdly, like when it came out, it was a <laughs> rental. Uh, Hollywood Homicide with Josh Hartnett. Yep. Was that yep. was that big in your family? Yes, because my sister was a was a Josh heart hot hot net uh, fan <laughs> as, as they called him back then yes yeah there you go i didn't know that, that was that was his nickname i didn't know that that was mm-hmm. uh, oh yeah um we, we we were a little we were a little too young for the josh hot net but she was she, she was, was the, prime age <laughs> four years older than me she was yeah I, I i actually text was we were texting about this last week but i'll tell this story if she she used to listen to the podcast i don't know if she still does anymore um <laughs> Uh, she was not allowed to see 40 days and 40 nights. Yeah. Uh, and she went over to a friend's house and they rented it at the friend's house. And my mom found out and she got in a lot of trouble. Um, I forgot. I, I, it's not even that good of a movie. No, it's, it's, not, not, it's not that good. Not that good. <laughs> well, when you first said it, I go, they wouldn't let her watch the vampire movie is what I thought. Cause that's 30, 30 days of <laughs> 40, night, 30 days of night. That was <laughs> with Josh Hartnett too. Yes. That's um, what I thought. And not the one. What's what's seven days and the one with Harrison Ford and the, oh, the seven, plane se- crash. Seven days and something weeks or whatever. Yeah, that the one. We, we, nope. the four days and forty nights. The one where Josh Hartnett gives up sex for Lent. That's yes, the um, that one. Um, now I got. I find that Harrison Ford movie. That uh, that name's gonna get me. Uh, six days, seven nights. That's what it was. Um. Yeah. It's. Yeah. It, it's a movie where. It, oh no last thing i said i read in one of the interviews when they were talking to ford about this movie someone asked like oh like so you're with liam neeson like did you guys talk about your work with george lucas on star wars or your your work with steven spielberg and he's like no yeah he goes he yeah goes, guys we're, we're not the- i don't know if you've i don't know if you picked this up or not harrison ford does not talk about <laughs> star wars in his day-to-day life he does not care <laughs> he was like did you talk about star or did you talk about like working with spielberg how he was in schindler's list and you were in like and you were in uh um indiana jones he's like no we're not that type guys it's like what do you say He's like, we goes, we're type guys that we don't really talk about acting when talking with one another. We talk about other things is the yeah. thing. But yeah, so with this, it doesn't do well at the box office. And Bigelow has to kind of readjust is the thing. So after Canting the Widowmaker, Bigelow transitioned to television for a short time. 
She directed mm-hmm. the final episode of the ill-fated Karen Cisco show. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of out of sight spinoff. And so she does that. Then during this time, she became aware of writer Mark Bowl, And she read one of his articles in Playboy when they had articles in Playboy. Uh, and she, yeah, when you read it, when you back back when you read it for the articles, yeah, yeah, yeah. she began working on a television series uh, based off one of Mark Bowles' uh, stories called "The Inside." It was over at Fox. Not long after being involved, Bigelow would leave the show, and it would be redeveloped after she left. And the show would only last for like a season, basically, only like a month or so. At this time. Ball was going off to Iraq to be embedded with the bomb squad for two weeks. And she was like, hey, let's keep in contact. You might see some stuff that could be a movie if you go there. So when Ball went to Iraq, Bigelow kept up with him through email, learning, and she learned about what was going on during the day, day in the life of a bomb squad unit. And Bigelow felt at that time that the Iraq war wasn't being reported on that much, at least in terms of what was actually happening over there. And she admitted that she was kind of unaware of what was happening and she kind of wanted to investigate it more. They would spend, or when Bull came back to the States, they immediately began working on the script. Bigelow's goal, she said, was to create a film that was the observed what was going on and looking at the psychological aspect of a soldier, the psychology of a soldier mm-hmm. in war, and not really lean any other way in one way towards politics. She wanted to be like a reporter in the field just telling you what she's seeing. They would mm-hmm. spend all of 2005 working on the script, and then in 2006, they would raise money for the script, and then in 2007, they would start production on the script. Now, Bigelow decided to go the independent route with this film. As she said, mostly all my films have been independent, even the big ones, as we just saw a Canadian Widowmaker. Um, and sh- the reason why she had to go independent was that she, f- she wanted to shoot an- on location in the Middle East, and she knew that no major studio would give her the go-ahead to shoot so close to a war zone. And she she said they were, they were going to make me shoot in Morocco. And Morocco, while beautiful, it's in North Africa. And she said it wouldn't be authentic to the Middle East because we would mm-hmm. need, the, the extras would be North African extras and not be Arabic is what it was. And she wanted to be as close to the real thing as possible. And so that's why she went the independent route. And when casting for the film, uh, she wanted to cast mostly unknowns in the lead roles. She stated that she always likes working with emerging talent, which I kind of thinking about didn't really realize. It's like, oh yeah, a lot of her movies, she's kind of working with new people in some form or fashion or mm-hmm. new in that type of role. If it's Keanu Reeves in Point Break, um, if it's to, to an extent, uh, Ray Fiennes, who's like, yeah, he's come out of Schindler's List, but he's fairly new to the game. Mm-hmm. Um uh, way to water Elizabeth Hurley's kind of new to the game as well. If you want to get in, as is Josh Lucas, um, Willem Dafoe with a Loveless. She's all she's always kind of doing that with, um, with actors, and so she didn't want any big names because she also wanted to feel like these these could be people who were actually soldiers. So she cast Jeremy Renner after seeing him in Dahmer. Uh, she cast Anthony Mackie after seeing him in Half Nelson, and she cast Brian Garrity after seeing him in Jarhead is what it was. Mark mm. Mark Burnett, the film's casting director, said one of the things that was so nice about putting these three guys into roles this meaty was they were actors who'd been doing great work for years in supporting parts, but maybe hadn't gotten a lot of opportunities to do to be leads in their own films. Uh, Renner would pretty much dive headfirst into research for this role, uh, spending a week at Fort Irwin, a military base in the Mojave Desert, to learn how to use C4 explosives, 
how to render safe improvised explosive devices, and how to wear a bomb suit. Uh, before filming in Jordan, which is where I ended up deciding to shoot at, which is not, I think it borders Iraq is what it is, um, mm-hmm. Bigelow actually met with the king of Jordan to get permission oh. to film in Jordan. She said, I sort of felt like the fate of the production related on the outcome of this that particular meeting. Yeah, on the other hand, I didn't want to be anything other than straightforward and honest. So I realized Thomas didn't say anything, but what is the Hurt Locker? <laughs> Which is what the, movie, the uh, movie I've been talking about the entire time here. What is the Hurt Locker uh, about? The Hurt Locker is about a military bomb squad in Afghanistan, and uh, they they lose their bomb tech at the beginning of the film mm-hmm. not really a spoiler first 10 minutes of the movie yeah uh and so they bring in this new bomb tech who is like the best of the best but he's also like the <clears throat> well he's a little unhinged he yes. doesn't do th- he doesn't do things by the book uh but it's very dangerous the way that he goes about it and um so yeah you've got anthony mackie as kind of the leader of the support team that that brings in the bomb tech and then jeremy renner as as this bomb tech and and it just kind of goes from from kind of bomb to bomb really it's like a series of vignettes of of diffusing different bombs and 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 yeah it's it's a very interesting story structure for a movie very it's yeah it's very episodic like she was Mm -hmm. she was talking about my ass like oh why do you do this she was like well like because in a bomb squad unit like they're going out four to six times a day. It feels like sometimes like they're not just mm-hmm. like sitting around like, and when you're doing it, you're doing it in the moment. You're not really thinking about the next thing or whatever. Like, so this movie very much is like, Oh, like we show like, I think six or six or so bombs or whatever. within they're like 30 days is what it is. And actually she, she wanted to say the psychology of a soldier, not really like a plot. So like, again, We've talked about her patience with things and how she always tends to like wait for the inciting incident or whatever to happen midway through the movie. This time it's just more like just like you said, vignettes of these of these of this group. But she in a similar fashion, she doesn't really start revealing a lot about the characters till much later in the movie, is the thing. Mm-hmm. Like one of my favorite scenes is after the um which one is it? It's at, it's after the it's after the car one, the big car one, right? When when mm-hmm. they um when they go back and they're actually like just kind of fooling around like wrestling or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he start like Rare talks about like his wife and kid at home or his ex-wife at home. Um and then Mackie's like, Oh yeah, like I have a girl, I really like her, but she wants me to have kids. And Rare's like, You should just have kids with her then. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. And but you're kind of starting to find out who these kind of characters are outside of the war is the mm-hmm. thing and it's amazing how they're like starting off really great in the scene and they start kind of revealing more about one another and they start wrestling and then renner kind of again becomes a dick and is like on top of mackie and holding Just them takes down things too far takes like too he far does. as he, well, yeah, as he does <laughs> everything in his life it feels like and then mackie just like pulls out a knife and is about to like you mm-hmm. know get off me fam um mm-hmm. but yeah it's like renner is honestly extraordinary in the role like he is Mm -hmm. amazing as this hothead like just great intro the first time you see him is like he's in his room with like heavy metal music playing or whatever like in the darkness 
and taking the taking the shields off the windows because yeah. he'd rather see the sunlight than than you know protect himself from yeah. from shrapnel because he's like yeah it, yeah it's, it's good. bombs will come to the roof just as easy it will come to the window so that we're not protecting that so yeah he and he and mackie make such a good pair and I, one thing i love about the the first scene of this movie is is so good at dropping us into this because i mean a it's it you know i think it is such a bold if when you're making a movie about defusing bombs the choice is like when is the first time a bomb is going to go off yeah. and to have it be the first five minutes of the movie i think raises the stakes mm-hmm. because you know that that this can go off at any time you know it's not it's it, if i think if they didn't if it didn't go off then you'd be like okay one's not gonna go off until like the climax right yeah. it's it's like no none of these characters are gonna die until the climax so to have one go off at the beginning and take out guy pierce just like okay no no one's, no one's safe. safe now yeah and but you also see in that first scene that mackie is like very sam born is his character yeah. like they're having a good time yeah. he's very loosey-goosey yeah it's it, he's not he's not this like i think in traditional storytelling like he'd be this like by the rules guy and yeah. then they bring in renner and it's like oh james and, the, and then it's like oh they're gonna butt heads but like he's yeah very joking around Playing having a good yeah. time it's 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 james being so over the top that kind of pushes Samborn to have to become the law, you know, to yeah. have to become the guy who, who, who lays down the rules. Um, it's yeah. He is. Cause you know, they're, they're just joking around. They're playing around with the robot mm-hmm. and, and the guy Pierce scene they're, they're having a good time. And, and, and yes, I think that experience with guy Pierce kind of pulls yeah. make, makes Samborn take it a little bit more seriously. But um, but then you start to see those moments when he's just like, why is James not responding to us? And the other one's like, oh, I think he took his headset off. And then he punches him in the face after that one. And it's like, never take your cans yeah. off. Like, I'm in charge here. You listen to me. This is my operation. Yeah. And Eldridge is so kind of guilt ridden by like, he didn't take a shot at the person who blew up who mm-hmm. did the bomb in the beginning. And no, it was when I was talking about them talking afterwards at the at the, kind of their quarters. It was after the sniper scene is what it was, not the the car bomb. Because mm. the sniper scene is the Ray Fine scene, which yes. pops up for <laughs> this one scene. Apparently, yeah. he was like really gung ho about doing. It. He's like, he's like, I don't want to wear like uh, a uniform. I just don't want to wear a uniform. Can you please mean it's not a uniform? They're like, we can put you in this. Like, that's great. I'll come do the movie. <laughs> like he was, he was like, I, I want to come do it, but I don't want to be wearing like a, a a military uniform. Is the thing. Yeah. Yeah, I was I, when he popped up. I was like, I, I kind, I had half forgotten that he had a cameo in this, and now I'm like, no, I've seen Strange Days. Makes I, sense. It's a little, well, now I get it. Yeah, yeah, he's like, he's they're friends. Um, and yeah, it's it's again, it's like these episodic things. It's they each they build upon each, the character each time. It feels like in mm-hmm. some way, it's like yeah, re, for, you get the first intro of Renner being like, I'm, I'm a rebel man. I'm gonna do whatever I want to. And then you have, yeah, because the first one he's just kind of like, "Hey, you want the robot?" And he's like, "No, nah, I don't. I'm I don't good. need the bottom. I'm just going in." And then the second one is when he's taking off his suit and like, "What the hell are you doing?" He's like, "If I'm going out, I'm going out comfortable. Like, yeah. I'm, this it's gonna kill me either way if it goes off." Yeah, because um, yeah, it's it's like yeah, it's like when you get to a certain close to this bomb, you're you ain't surviving. A, a, a bomb mm-hmm. a bomb vest ain't gonna help me any. Screw it is the thing. Um, but but each of those little vignettes are such a 
insane exercise intention every mm-hmm. every single mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. and it's it's her it's her knowing when to cut away to these people watching it's you know you never know uh when the people watching are getting I, I i i that first one we get when you get the guy coming downstairs to like check on the fuse and yeah. then he has that just has that moment where he comes running by and renters like just kind of dangles the the uh ignition in front of him is like hey i already got it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but it, it just leads to this constant like any person and then she's always cutting away these little shots of people watching and you and you never know when someone's going to pull a phone out and, and detonate it and yeah. and or someone's going to take a shot at these guys that are like out in the open just waiting on him to to finish up yeah that that'll come into play in how she shoots this of how she's able to get all of that that footage basically mm. Um, let's see. Another, I mean, again, with the sniper section when they meet finds, and that's where like they they kind of really bond as a team. There is mm-hmm. the thing where, again, it's like this great character moment where like Renner asked for, "Hey, I need where's some juice? Need some juice up here?" And and him and Mackie have been like standing up, sitting, sitting up there for a long time trying to snipe these they're like spitting like straight sand out of their yeah, mouths and yeah. there's flies buzzing into their mouth yeah. oh it's yeah and renner gets the juice and you think oh he's gonna take take he's gonna drink the juice he just gives it to mackie and lets mm-hmm. mackie have it and then uh and then eldridge's kid or eldridge is like he's just out there by himself just sipping on his juice like no big deal <laughs> <laughs> but then he has it where he sees someone um yeah. back there and he's like what do i do and Renner's like do whatever you want to buddy like we're it's your call, your call. <laughs> we're sitting here watching this guy i can't turn my head <laughs> so you're you're it's it's on you buddy and um and yeah it's just there's these like you said great tension moments i love the the sequence when it's the nighttime bombing and it almost becomes almost like a serial killer movie where Renner's like, mm. this is where he'd be at. This is where I would be at. Like, we're going to find mm-hmm. him. I'm going to get this guy. And it becomes, it It feels like, like Morgan Freeman or Brad Pitt and seven being like, oh, mm-hmm. he wants, he wants this to happen. He has, he wants to see his work. Like, it feels like Renner is what Renner's so interesting is that he's, he can diffuse these bombs, but in a way, same as kind of like a cop movie is that like he's so almost in the other like on the other side he's mm-hmm. he's done it so many times he doesn't think like a soldier he thinks like what they what the, what the enemy would think like that's yeah. what his mind's like he goes no 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 he would be right here he wouldn't he wouldn't just detonate it so far away he, he wants to see something like this like he's he's mm-hmm. almost in the psyche of what the enemy is like and that's what's like makes him fascinating as a character is that he could be terrible, but he chooses to be good is the thing. Mm-hmm. I think something else really effective about this movie, and, and I think part of the reason why it's kind of endured as opposed to a lot of the kind of... There there were a lot of Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan movies that came out, and there were movies like Jarhead that were using uh, the Gulf War as like a parallel yes. for what was happening in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but there was this always this, and people talked a lot about it when American Sniper came out. There's this idea, like, how do you portray this war in which, like, most of the people, most of the, because there, there's some of these movies, the, the worst examples of them are just like everybody here is a threat, you know? And I'm sure that in in a certain mindset, you get you get that kind of, 
she she delves into that mindset with like the cab driver or something where it's just like in this moment right now i do not know what side you're on so i need you to yeah they, they i think it's a great line where renner says you know they pull that guy out and like throw him on the ground and they drag him off and renner says well if he wasn't an insurgent he is now yeah and and like that is such a great understanding of what without getting like overly political that is a great understanding of what we were doing there and the effect of what yeah. we were doing there at the time but um but you know you don't really see most of the people we are introduced to in this movie are innocent bystanders mm-hmm. it's not that kind of thing where it's all you know where al-qaeda is lurking behind every corner um she really leaves the bombers and the insurgents we barely see it all yeah and and most of the interactions that they do have are innocent people which helps to hammer home like this this is not it's not a war zone this is yeah. people's homes and if these bombs go off a lot of the because i think a lot of the soldiers in the movie are like let's just let's just get away we need yeah. to get to cover and, and let this bomb go off and it's like well, that's a person's home right next yeah, to yeah. it and the and the movie itself has that perspective even if the even if the soldiers at the time do not. And so I think it's a really good balance of, yes, this is the mindset these soldiers are in when you are under constant threat, but also we are an invading force in somebody's homeland. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, she, she, what she does with several scenes that she, yeah, she puts a human in, in, in the roles, if that makes sense. Like she humanizes certain characters, the innocent bystanders. It's the, it's the boy who sells the bootleg DVDs or whatever. And like Renner thinks that he, that the, this kid might be the one who's dead. That he sees who's like, he's now become a human bomb basically. And mm-hmm. he's like, just like completely shocked by it and like, doesn't know how to act. Mm-hmm. And then once you kind of have the twist about that, he still doesn't know how to like how to yeah. take it. It's just like I'm I'm just gonna goes, ignore this. I got too close to <laughs> I can't it. Can't handle I, it. I gotta stay, yeah. I gotta stay away. From, I got too close to it. And gosh, the scene that I because I haven't seen this since it came out, so it's been like a like a long. I mean, it's been over a decade, and I still remember the 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 big like suicide bomber where it's the guy who mm-hmm. is the innocent bystander that the bomb's been put on him to do, mm-hmm. and. It's just he's that actor's great, Renner's great, like, and it's yeah. the moment where like when Renner has to break away from him, and uh, because oh. it's the, it's the he he really does it's it's twofold of like you know he's somebody who has to beat every bomb and yeah. he's having to admit defeat. It, this is a situation where admitting defeat of, of to one of the bombs is obviously already tough for him, but this is one where there is immediate. Like he is going to lose to this bomb and he is going to not be able to save this man. Yeah. And that's like, and then that's what makes the kind of ending. So like, in, I mean, it basically just like that, even with all that, he can only be a soldier mm. in his mind. It's like, yeah, even it just brings that opening quote back. Yeah. It's a drug. It's a drug. It's a, even with all that, it's the new, the new, the next day is a new day. Mm-hmm. tomorrow is gone and i gotta get this high again and yes that mm-hmm. moment when he's talking to david morse who's who pops up again for like two scenes or whatever in this movie mm-hmm. and he's just like oh how many bombs you've done he's like oh i don't know no come on you know he's like okay 857 and you're like what mm-hmm. the fuck? <laughs> yeah this guy is insane <laughs> but yeah it's it's really just great episodic scenes it, it's it's really great so where's our trigger man burnt up in the flames man Suicide bomber. 
I never found a body in that shit. What if there was no body? What if it was a remote dead? A really good bad guy hides out in the dark, right? Mm-hmm. Right here. The perfect vantage point outside the blast radius to sit back and watch us clean up their mess. You want to go out there? Yes, I do. I could stand to get in a little trouble. No, man. And that ain't our fucking job. You don't say no to me, Sanborn. I say no to you, okay? You know there are guys watching us right now. They're laughing at this, okay? And I'm not okay with that. So, yes, the shoot for the film would last for 44 days. And mm. Bigelow used four different camera units on location in Jordan. When talking about the four camera units, she said we were constantly creating a fluid set that was alive and active in 360 degrees from camera from a camera standpoint, a production stand production design standpoint, and a performance standpoint. So we were basically reenacting the scene with each take from beginning to end, no stopping. She said she started working with multiple camera units since Point Break and continued to do that for the rest of her films. So I didn't know that when I talked about that on Point Break last week, but it just came back into play here as that <laughs> became her style. Um, but that was what allowed her to be like to cut to this person over here for a quick thing, cut mm-hmm. over here because she had cameras just constantly going, basically. Um, Bigelow would also cast a lot of local actors in Jordan because many of them were Iraqi refugees, Iraqi ef- mm-hmm. refugees that had come over mm-hmm. to the country during the war. Um, Bigelow said that several of the refugees were actually big theatrical actors in Baghdad because there was a big theater scene over there mm-hmm. before they came over to, to Jordan. Uh, the big one being uh, Suhal uh, Dabak, who plays the innocent man as a suicide bomber. He was like apparently mm. a big actor in Baghdad they didn't know about. Also, Bigelow said there was a pretty like decent-sized or like kind of young film community in Jordan, and she even started like a trainee program over there in Jordan during her time to kind of educate about filmmaking uh to people in jordan mm. well that just makes me think about that uh that kid the you know the documentary oh, the opera- kid that op- lied. operation filmmaker is that what, yeah. The one? yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i still need to watch that that's one uh, i think you found a recommended that's, to me that's a wild ride yeah, yeah. um uh, because they were shooting in jordan the production was right near uh iraq and bigelow and director of photography barry uh, Ackroyd wanted to cross the border at one point to get a few shots in the country, but they were told by security it would be hard to guarantee safety due to snipers. So they decided against it. Um, Bigelow also worked with uh, Ackroyd on making sure the geography of the film was correct and the audience wasn't confused by where everyone was. Geography meaning where you're at in the scene and like mm-hmm. how you're blocked, basically. And while Bigelow loved shooting on location in Jordan because the authenticity of it, the conditions were grueling. Um, a lot of people said when they found out they were shooting in Jordan, uh, a low budget, basically a low, low budget indie film in Jordan. They're like, what are you doing? Like all the actors were just like, people thought we were insane to go shoot this low budget war film about the Iraq war in Jordan. The average temperature was between 150 and 120 degrees every day. Bigelow, the most challenging aspect of the actual production was putting Renner in the actual bomb suit, which weighed... Yeah, I was about to say, I'd take that suit off if I were him, too. Yeah, which weighed between 8 to 100 pounds. Renner also got food poisoning during the shoot, losing almost 15 pounds over the course of the film because of it. 
he also fell down the stairs during one scene when he was trying to carry the dead the dead kid uh that he was trying to take the bomb out uh resulting in him spraining his ankle and the production being shut down for a week because of it renner said there were two by fours with nails being dropped from two-story buildings that hit me in the helmet and they were throwing rocks we got shot at a few times while we were filming when you see it you're gonna feel like you've been in a war or <laughs> you've been you've been in war when the film moved into post-production, they had over 200 hours worth of footage to comb through because of Bigelow's four camera units. The mm. raw footage was described as a hodgepodge of disconnected, nausea-inducing motion that was constantly crossing the 180-degree degree line. They started editing the film in Jordan during production, spending eight weeks there before moving back to L.A., and it would take a total of eight months to edit the film. The film premiered at the Venice Film Festival in September 2008, where it received a 10-minute standing ovation. The film be picked up from, from Summit Entertainment after it was shown at Toronto International Film Festival for $1.5 million. Pretty, pretty low for what ends up happening mm-hmm. in this movie. Uh, it garnered interest from several distribu- distributors, but they were worried about how many previous Iraq War movies had been released and performed poorly at the box office. Yeah, I know, I know Jarhead kind of bombed right it didn't, um, yeah it didn't do great just despite it this uh, quick you, <laughs> you, you you know how fascinated i am by this i know but this is i don't enough people don't talk about this the movie jarhead which is an anti-war film yes. by directed by sam mendes has become a straight to dvd action movie franchise yeah. and i don't know who was responsible for this or who had the idea to do this or who was even asking for this like who saw the movie Jarhead and was like, I want to see this again, but just with them kicking ass like that. Is, no, <laughs> hell yeah, it is. It is bizarre. <laughs> and maybe with something like American Sniper, I could see like, you know, yeah. American Sniper 2 with Frank Grillo or something like that, you know, but like, yeah, Jarhead 4. It's that's insane. There's, there's four Jarheads. There's like it's 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 like I, I could see this for the Marine with John Cena, mm-hmm. which they've made like six of them. But Jarhead just feels like it was kind of supposed to be this like prestige movie and got yeah. turned into an action franchise on directed video. <laughs> uh, it's fun. From the I- guy who gave you American Beauty comes Jarhead, Jarhead. Call of Duty. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but yeah, so people, so, uh, so uh, companies were worried there was an Iraqi war film fatigue, basically. Mm-hmm. But after it premiered at Venice Film Festival and being bought Toronto, it went on a kind of a festival run. And while it was premiered in 2008, like many of Big Lowe's films, uh, it was not released until June 2009 with a limited release, almost a year later, with a limited release at four theaters in L.A. and New York. Uh, the film's final gross was $17 million against a $15 million, I'm sorry, $17 million in the U.S. against a $15 million budget. It would gross $50 million worldwide. So it would become a box office success. Um, the film was also praised by critics, with many claiming it to be the best Iraqi war film. Up to that point, Ebert would give it four stars, uh, saying The Heart Locker is a great film, an intelligent film, a film shot clearly so that we know exactly who everybody is and where they are and what they're doing and why. The film would eventually garner nine Oscar nominations, with Catherine Bigelow mm-hmm. being the odds on favorite to win Best Director. Her big opponent for that year was her ex-husband, James Cameron. And Cameron and Bigelow were still close to that point. Some even say Cameron 
or I read that Cameron said that he read the script early on and told her she should really like make this movie because she was so passionate about it. Um, mm. At one point after Strange Days, Cameron said that he wished him and Bigelow made more movies together, but but he she, she kind of needed to go off on her own because many people claimed that he was the one directing all of her films, which he said was utter lies. He's mm-hmm. like, he goes, my films are vastly different than hers. Like she shoots everything kind of like, but he was basically that the styles are different and like the lenses they use. And I, I was talking to a, guy, a friend of mine that I know where we were discussing Bigelow and Cameron. And he, he said that like, if you watch that period of when they're together, you can kind of see Bigelow rubbing off on Cameron and Cameron rubbing off on Bigelow where like mm-hmm. Cameron stuff gets a little bit more like poetic and more artistic with his shots when she gets made a little more action heavy with some of her stories and they kind of like some, they kind of like meld together weirdly right then. Bigelow would eventually win best director, becoming the first female director to win the award and also win six Oscars, including best picture. Now, do you remember what was nominated that year, Thomas? Besides avatar. It was my senior year of high school. It was. Uh, It, 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 it was it was the first year they did the 10 nominees, by the way, in a while. Mm. Hurt Locker, Avatar, The Blind Side, Dis- District 9, An, edu- okay. an Education, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and Glorious Bastards, mm-hmm. Precious, mm-hmm. based on the novel Pushed mm-hmm. by Sapphire, mm-hmm. uh, A Serious Man, yes. Up, and Up in the Air. Oh yeah, up and up in the air. Yeah, I saw I saw most of those that I see, year. Yeah, so, wow. I still haven't seen uh, an education or District Nine. I actually haven't seen District Nine. Oh yeah, people were surprised. Actually, yeah, I think I saw all of those that year because yeah. I, I I had an education, bought it at a blockbuster sale at some point. Yeah, Crazy um, Crazy Heart and Invictus were also that year because mm. Jeff Bridges would win for Crazy Heart. But Crazy Heart didn't win best song, right? No, it did. It did win best song. Let me see. I want to make sure. Yeah, the weary kind. Uh, yeah. Ryan Bingham. Ryan Bingham and T Bone Burnett. Ryan Bingham, who's T-Bone now Burnett, who's yeah. now on Yellowstone. Oh, yeah, he's a big part of Yellowstone. He's he's a he's a kind of he's a cowboy who works on the ranch, but also can play guitar. Nice. Um. So yeah, uh, in the U.S., the Hurt Locker is one of the only five Best Picture winners to never enter the weekend box office top five since the top 10 rankings were recorded in 1982 is also the only one of the two best picture winners to never enter the weekend box, box, uh, weekend box office top 10. Can you guess the other movie that's never entered into the box office top 10? Coda. No. Well, wow. I guess, okay. I guess, I guess probably maybe, maybe, well, cause it was all on Apple. May is the stats from before Coda, before streaming, I would okay. say. All right. Uh, the other was The Artist. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. And yeah, and after finally having her Hollywood success and winning in, winning Best Director, finally being kind of given the, the uh, appreciation that she deserved for a while, uh, Bigelow was on to bigger projects. And that will be next week when we talk about Zero Dark Thirty and Detroit. But Thomas, what are you seeing now? We're part we're three we're three episodes in. We're um oh gosh, eight movies in. <laughs> I think we've <clears throat> I think it's so interesting looking into her background because I think she's become 
such a I don't even know what the word uh, for it would be at this point in a career. I think the the transition from like visual artist mm -hmm. to uh, she's she is such a focused storyteller. You know, it's she's she, she never wastes a shot like mm -hmm. every shot is going towards telling a story and to go back and watch something like the loveless that is like almost the opposite of that is such an interesting um it's such an interesting way to watch her kind of explore um i think i think we've arrived at this point where it is very obvious from the beginning we we said with the loveless that she was starting to explore with like movement within like set up the camera take an image like you're doing photographic art but then kind of start to explore with movement inside of it mm -hmm. and i think it like i think it's storytelling is just something that comes naturally to her and she's just getting more and more to it where <clears throat> when you get hurt locker and like we'll see with zero dark 30 it is it is so um efficient she's yeah. very she's a very efficient, efficient storyteller mm -hmm. um and and yeah i think i think we were starting to get there with with k19 and and but then with the hurt locker it's like the the transformation is is complete yeah and, and she has become the Catherine bigelow that i think of now like when you yes. when you hear like Catherine bigelow's making a movie you're like it's gonna be this like very uh this this it is it is all about story yes. very story forward yeah. um and that's not that's not <clears throat> i feel like sometimes when people say like story forward or all about story that's a way to diss the visuals but it, it's not it's about finding the best way to make the visuals move yeah. towards the story which directors don't often don't always do yeah um but also character driven i think many of her things are uh, zero dark 30 is going to be this very unique character study Yes. Of Jessica Chastain, which again, I haven't seen since it came out in theaters. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm really kind of intrigued to see my take on it once we, cause I, I'm like, I remember elements to it. I remember kind of how Chastain being someone who I was really enthralled by pre zero mm -hmm. dark 30. Cause it felt like, and we'll talk about next week, like felt like she came out of nowhere type thing is yes. the thing. Yep. And then like hit this big this great movie like had a bunch of Oscar nominations like close together and then not a lot and then she won for um eyes tammy faye and yeah it's it's that'll be interesting kind of to discuss and dive into but yeah i think below stuff is all very character driven even from point break i think there she's making movies that are about these unique characters near dark is another example um and i think as an action director her style has evolved incredibly well. And she'll mm -hmm. tell you like, Oh, all that action stuff I've learned, how can I put it into this like intense drama mm -hmm. and how to take a drama that could just be people talking and, and say zero 30 and it be like just suspenseful is the thing. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it's like, it's so funny that K-19, the Widowmaker, and to an extent, the weight of water, two movies are kind of these low moments for her end up being this pivot to what she's known for for most for, like, for the back mm -hmm. half of her career. It's like, oh, Catherine Bigelow, she does war movies. She does this, but like she's done. It's like a it's like a journalistic yeah. film almost. Yeah. Um but even with all she still like looks at um genres. I mean K19 Widowmaker is is a is a submarine movie, which is a genre. <laughs> um and she talks about like with with Hurt Locker how she saw war as like the ultimate film to make because it's this massive canvas 
you can work with with and you can explore all these different thematic elements that you can't say do in like a vampire movie mm. but you can in a war film so zero dark 30 i think will continue that in some form or fashion next week so yeah so that's this week uh that's all we have for you in part three of our episodes I was like what, what number we? part three of our, our series on Catherine bigelow if you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at Podcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, how much you love Jimmy Renner in the Hurt Locker, how much you love Anthony Mackie in the Hurt Locker, how much you love Ray Fiennes in the Hurt Locker, whatever you want to tell us. <laughs> um, if you're a listener of the show or a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, what are you doing? Subscribe to us. You can stay up to all of our new episodes. Uh, we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us reviewing your preferred podcast platform. Some people are addicted to war. You can just be addicted to the Cine Nation podcast, and that's okay. Just let people know. Share it. How long do you think these episodes? It's just like once I say it, it just comes to you. I, I'm just like, oh shoot! I some, <laughs> occasionally, occasionally I come to it with one, but uh, most of the time it's it's like thirty oh, seconds no. before I'm like, oh, I do this every week. Why do I keep forgetting that I need to do it? Oh man uh yeah so give us a review those reviews help us so much we like it get, gains exposure for us but we also just love hearing what you have to say about the show we appreciate it so much and if you don't if you can't give us a review that's great but you can also join our patreon where we have uh we talk about more movies on there more exclusive content uh we have three levels one dollar five dollar ten dollar and uh this past week i think it's i think it's come out by the time we're recording this but we're doing lost boys david and i came on to talk about the lost boys as this interesting comparison to Near Dark and the vampire movies coming out the same year and kind of how Bigelow's differs from Lost Boys. So yeah, we'll discuss there. Um, and also, if you haven't liked and follow us on, or if you haven't already, like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, TikTok, all that stuff. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.